This is a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. There's a description. The secrets that are mine alone. Coming up to two minutes past nine, you are tuned to 102.73 Triple R. This is Radio Marinara. We are the program about all things wet and salty. My name's Bron Burton. And I'm Dr. Surf. And I'm Dr. Beach. Good morning. Morning. Gents. Lovely day. It's actually really good weather. I actually didn't see any balloons coming in. Usually I see hot air balloons over the eastern freeway and they just weren't up. They're soft. What? It was pretty windy last night. Do you think that maybe put uh, them off? 30, 30 not northwesterlies and they don't go up. Mm. Come on, boys. Go hard or go home. Dr. Surf wants his bit of morning <laughs> fun. <laughs> I do. I want to see them taking off. They'd end up in Sydney, I reckon, before you could blink. <laughs> Although <laughs> northwesterlies, they'd, they'd be more maybe like Tassie. Wa- wagga wagga. No, northwest, they're going to go up. Oh, no, they're not. They're going to go down. Yeah. I think I'd better go back to bed. <laughs> <laughs> it's all right. I've got a PhD. I know what I'm talking about. I just Trust don't know you. the difference between north and south. Trust you. You're a I doctor. I could get a job on Channel 10 as a weatherman with those sort of credentials because he's got no idea. <laughs> How are you, Dr. Beach? I'm, I'm very well. Good. Yeah, nice Excellent. and chilly. It is indeed. Hey, thank you, Tim, for Vital Bits. I did enjoy that um, Bowie bracket at about ten past eight. It's all things Bowie. It's all over. Yeah, everyone's very hot got, for this exhibition. You've got a book, though, because my son tried to go and he couldn't get in. Oh, really? Mm. Did he just front up? Yep. Oh. I'm going. Friday, Friday night. Really? Mm-hmm. Oh. I'm going to get tickets. I've decided... I always intended to go. It's on till November. There's a bit of time. We've got Bowie and then footy. On oh, right. On, on Friday. <laughs> From Bowie straight to the MCG. Well, you've got a very fun Friday evening planned up the know, beach. I know. It's all sorted. It's all <laughs> happening. What are you going to wear? Um, I thought I should go as the Thin White Duke. To the footy? 
Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> With a duffel coat over the top. Yeah. Complete the picture. <laughs> hey, eclectic show coming up. We've got Cecilia Witten. She's the executive officer for the Mornington Peninsula, sorry, the Western Port Biosphere. Actually, I have to ask her what the difference is whether they are one, whether one is a subset of the other or whether there's been a name change. But anyway, the Western Port Biosphere, let's call as, it. As, as in biospheres as opposed to Mornington potentially being separate to Western Port itself, which we know it is. Well, yeah, interesting, interesting one. You know, even just in the concept of geography and how that actually works on the ground because, as we all know, nature knows no boundaries. Yeah, where's the border? Yeah. So Tubber rubber road. Tubber rubber road. <laughs> That's the boundary. Is it? Yep. So we're going to talk to Cecilia about the biosphere and uh, in a global context as well, you know, what, what biospheres around the world are doing, what Western Port's doing, what are the, some of the uh, the current threats and challenges. It's been, was declared a biosphere a long time ago, so where are things at today? Uh, and then uh, Dr Surf, we have a special guest. We do. We've got Sean Doherty on, who is a well-known surf author, journalist and he works for Patagonia, so I'm going to have a quick chat to him about Patagonia. Not as an ad, but just because they have a very different um, corporate philosophy, and it's very interesting. Plus, I think we're going to have a little chat about what happened to Mick Fenning this week. Yeah. Luckiest man on the planet. Pretty extraordinary. Mm. Extraordinary footage. Well, it, it the footage was extraordinary. What happened, happens. Yeah. And we saw yesterday that a poor person was taken by a shark. Oh, but I didn't see that. In Tassie. Right. Scallop diving. But to have it live, and really live, no delay, mm. that there's a bit of an issue there, I think. Mm. Anyway, we'll have a chat about it. And that yesterday, that was live in front of that poor person's daughter. That's right. Oh, no. Mm. Amateur scholar diver. Munched. And then, uh, yeah, and to more... <coughs> pardon me, to more cheery things later, I'm going to talk about um, the deepest microbes we know about, 2.5K below the seabed. And there's a, few, yeah, there's a few papers that kind of piqued my interest. There's another one, if we get time, I'd really like to talk about, which is about a really wacky novel type of eye in the unicellular phytoplankton. Oh, cool. I'd like to talk about eyes in general. It's like a cyclops of the tiniest variety, is it? Um, much more complex than that. Okay. It's a little bit like a camera. Interesting. Yeah. Are we doing hot corals? And we can do hot corals as well. Excellent. That's our show. Corals are hot. <laughs> they are. Bit of news. 11. It's not, not hot in Melbourne today. Melbourne town. 11 degrees. Partly cloudy. 90% chance of showers. It looks all right out there at the moment. Snow falling 600 metres. Wow. And above. Uh, chance of a storm. Possible hail. Oh, my goodness. Winds northwest 30 to 45 kilometres an hour. Turning westerly in the morning and then decreasing to 30 kilometres an hour in the late evening. Dr Surf. Um, there's plenty of waves. You'd need to find a sheltered spot, though. Mm. Very strong winds, but uh, I'm pretty grumpy because it looks good at the moment. <laughs> good thing about waves is that there's always going to be another one. Yeah. Tomorrow, possible shower in 12, and uh, then we're kind of back up into the mid-teens and a few showers on Tuesday, partly cloudy, 14 on Wednesday, and then a shower or two in the rest of the week, so it's going to kind of hover between 12 and 14 for the most of the week. Uh, the Tide Times, is it worth even reading the Tide Times today? Okay, there you go. <laughs> six and twelve, more or less. Yeah, Low pretty much. Low tide twelve, yep. high tide six. Excellent. And uh, we'll get you to do a surf report midway through Just the show. Just done it, Bron. Oh, have you? Get That's down there. Then. Go down the west coast. Go to the <laughs> sheltered spots like Point Road Night. I'd recommend Point Road Night. 
Or lawn, or if you're really good but you'd have to be experienced, you'd want to get into Winky. Around the corner, it's a bit sheltered from the westerlies. Mm. Down towards the valley, where Mark Philippoussis got stuck a few years ago. Surfing? Yeah, he, Did can't, he? he couldn't paddle out because it was a fairly sizable swell. When you get a sizable swell at Winky, there's a sweep. And you've got to be a strong paddler. And if you get stuck down at the valley, which is sort of between Winky and um, birdies or boobs, you're stuck. And he got stuck in the cave. Right. Which we all thought was hilarious. Wow. Surfing ain't tennis. <laughs> hey, I was just enjoying the, um, the back headline, I guess, on the age as you were holding it up there. It says, this is ground control to Major Bron. Major Bron. Major Bron. <laughs> Did you, uh, how'd you get here today, Bron? Yeah, in the helicopter. <laughs> It's really not been a good week to be called Bronwyn, I've got to say. You're going to charge it to triple R? <laughs> she already has. She's got the, don't you know who I am, look on her face. <laughs> Do you know triple R's got a helipad on its roof? <laughs> it's just for me. That was that womp, 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 womp. <laughs> exactly. Uh, you thought it was yeah. me laughing. It's actually the... Uh, <laughs> the chopper. It's the chopper. The Burton chopper. Yeah. Hey, we've got time for a little bit of news. Okay, I'm, I'm going to talk about one of those papers um, very quickly, The Deepest Microbes. A group of Japan, or group in Japan put down the um, largest experimental drill hole, about 2.5k below the surface of the seabed, and found active microbes there in old coal beds. Wow. Yeah. Two and a half kilometres below surface. Two and a half blo- kilometres below the seafloor. Oh, seafloor. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So a long way down. Wow. And that's the biggest hole that we've drilled into the earth. And deep down in there, they found, yeah, they found active live microbes and did genomics on them. They did microscopy on them, all sorts of things. And they did signatures of the methane they found down there to show that that was produced by the microbes, which is what we see in coal beds here. But if you go down below, it's the... The big thing about this is it's the biggest, deepest we've gone into the earth and we can find bugs there. still sign of life there. Yeah, so it's not in the water. It's way, way, way wow. below the water. There's life everywhere, Dr. Get, Beach. It's getting down mm. to about 60 degrees centigrade. Yeah. Because we're getting close to the core of the earth. That's pretty cool. I, well, yeah, a little bit warm. Yes. Hmm. <laughs> Hey, should we? Oh, actually, I want to do this one really quickly, and that's just to um, to pay our respects. If you are on our Facebook page, you would know this: that um, Felicity Wishart uh, died about this time last week, very unexpectedly. And if you're wondering who we're talking about, um, she was the campaign director of the Great Barrier Reef campaign for the Australian Marine Conservation Society. Um, we actually had her on our program in February, talking about the work that the AMCS was doing um, up on the Great Barrier Reef. So, yeah, absolutely uh, devastating. For the marine conservation movement and for the AMCS, and obviously for uh, for her family as well. And very sudden. And very sudden. So, uh, yeah, our respects out there to um, to Felicity Wishart and to her family, and of course to the AMCS as well. Um, on a positive for the AMCS, I did want to give this a uh, a bit of a plug because they've got a uh, photographer, Oceans Photographer of the Year competition. Um, this one came to us uh, a week ago, a couple of weeks ago. So, uh, I just wanted to mention this if you kind of fancy yourself as a as a, an ocean oceanic photographer either above the water or below and we know that there are a lot of you out there with um, some pretty fancy underwater cameras you can uh, you can enter there's fifteen thousand dollars worth of prizes up for grabs uh, including southern ocean lodge package including flights two nights accommodation in a flinders suite uh, dining island uh, airport transfers this is um at kangaroo island so it would be pretty spectacular to go off and do that there's also a scuba diving package um spirit of freedom trip and uh, there's a surfboard and beach pack too dr surf who from 
Um, it doesn't say. <laughs> <laughs> but I can find out if you're particularly interested. If it's from Wayne Lynch, I'm in. <laughs> yeah. uh, and all sorts of other prizes as well. So um, entry categories are conservation, animals, macro, landscapes and fine art. Entries close on 27th of September. So we'll um, continue to plug that one um, because it's a, it's a great thing and gives, does some great um, exposure for the AMCS. Um I think maybe we'll hear some music. Miss, miss, I've got some news. <laughs> just, a, just a shout out for those who are interested in the AFL and surfboards. We're doing a fundraiser for the Disabled Surfers Association. It'll come up in September. We've got 19 surfboards in AFL club colours, all AFL sanctioned, signed by the full list and coaches and they're going to be auctioned. The reason why there's 19 boards is there's two for Hawthorne. There's a 2014 Premiership board and the current list. And the guys that are making them, this is, these boards have been kindly made and donated by Trigger Brothers. Mm-hmm. They're very keen Hawthorne supporters and they're in the process of making a 2015 premiership board. <laughs> it's a bit cocky, but given their latest form, I don't think it's unwarranted. Okay. Anyway, I'll, look, I'm going to be putting information on our website about how you can bid for these boards and I will also hopefully get a, a, a community service announcement organised through this wonderful station. Awesome. So when you say our website, do you mean the DSA website? It'll be on every website we can poke a stick at, basically, because that's how we're getting the message across. We're going to have a launch, an event launch, hopefully at the Peninsula Surf Riders Club rooms at Gunner Manor. We'll invite all the clubs, surf lifesaving clubs and surf clubs, because the idea is it's the surf community coming together to raise money for the Disabled Surfers Association. That's awesome. Do you know when that launch will be? We're hoping it'll be on the 13th of September, which is a Sunday, but it's really we have to confirm that the, the Peninsula Surf Riders are happy to do it and we have to confirm the date. So it's very early on. I should have that info within a week. Great. So we'll keep uh, keep everyone out there posted. Mm. Brilliant. I'd, li- I'd like to go to that. You can come. Yeah, me yeah, too. I'm, I'm going to put that in my diary. The Demons board I saw yesterday looks fantastic. I bet it does. It's heading off. So I think you should yeah. start saving what's your a bombers, pennies. What's a bomber's board like? Uh, it's got a few dings in it. Does it float? <laughs> <laughs> does it float? Yes. <laughs> and that, 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 that Demons board isn't shit anymore. Oh, no. <laughs> Demons board's pristine. It's do got a big future. Can you, can you stay on the bomber's board or do you <laughs> fall off it? No, we've got a little bet about which board makes the most money. I reckon if the Tigers keep going the way they are, I reckon that board. Yeah. Because I've got, um, I think the Tigers are going to go far this year. But, you know, it'll probably be Collingwood or the Hawthorne boards. That's going to be great, Dr. Sir. Mm. And it'll be spectacular to see them all lined up against each other as well. Mm. All right, well, we'll definitely um, stay tuned because we'll keep you all posted on that one. And, uh, yes, this is Radio Marinara. In 2002, the Western Port Biosphere Reserve was designated under UNESCO's Man in the Biosphere Program. It was a program that aimed to achieve a sustainable balance between conserving biodiversity, promoting economic development and maintaining cultural values. It's 13 years on now from this declaration. We're wondering how is Western Port faring? Are its values and challenges similar to when it was designated a biosphere back in 2002? And if not, what's changed and what needs to be addressed? Cecilia Whitten is the Executive Officer of the Western Port Biosphere. She joins us now to talk about these and other questions on our magnificent biosphere known as Western Port. Good morning, Cecilia. Good morning, Roman. How are you? Well, thank you. And yourself? Excellent. Good, good to hear. Excellent. Welcome to, uh, to Triple R. Thought we might thought we might start with just a really basic question about a biosphere, and I've sort of mentioned a, f- a few things to define it. Um, how how is it defined, sort of in the in the purest terms? Uh, 
Um, in the purest terms, um, essentially there are three zones in a biosphere. There's what we call um, a core zone, which are, are the national parks uh, and the really protected areas. And outside that we have the buffer and terrestrial zones, which, all, which are the areas where we work and live. And the object primarily is to try and enhance and protect those core areas. So it, it, it has a situation of whatever we do in the other two zones um, impacts on that and understanding that and how we control those impacts. Okay, so, um, and Western Port is one of um, a whole series of biospheres around the world, isn't it? Yes, it's something like 681 biospheres oh, across wow. 114 countries. Oh, I didn't realise there were that quite many. quite good. Yeah, I didn't... There are. Yeah. There are. And we've got 14 here in Australia, um, which are you know, of uh, things like uh, Great Sandy in, in Queensland, Noosa Biosphere. Um, places that you don't think of, such as uh, Wilson's Promontory, uh, Corriginalong, Hattakalkine. There are just a couple of others in Victoria. So, so um, mm. there are quite a few. So there's actually, and it's interesting in terms of um, how, just even with those few that you mentioned, how diverse they are. So you have an area like Corriginalong, which is really quite pristine and there's not much development there. It does exist, but particularly, you know, compared to Western Port, where there's industry and uh, you know, refineries and, and growing urban population they're really quite different aren't they oh they are most definitely and that also reflects the changes in biosphere reserves and unesco's uh, interpretation of what biosphere reserves are which has evolved over time since the uh, civil strategy um, initially they were particularly national parks as most of australian biosphere reserves are and now they're more um uh, peri-urban biospheres like ours, which have the uh, uh, interaction with population as well as just the, the um, national the bushland. So what it's doing is emphasising the fact that we live in the biosphere, so we have responsibility for it. And you know, it sort of puts the emphasis on how you live in and how you protect that area. You're not separate from it; you are part of it. It's all integrated. I'm interested. So let's let's talk about the uh, the Western Port biosphere. How much of Western Port does yeah. it cover? Does it include Phillip Island and French Island as well? Yes, it does. Uh, in actual fact, French Island is part of the is part, really a large part of the core area because of its national park area, and we've got the, um, three marine national parks also in the biosphere reserve as well this time. And it's quite big, isn't so, it? Um, yes, yeah, so, um, we've got probably nine thousand three hundred hectares of core area, uh, about another thirteen thousand hectares of buffer zone and 50,000 of um, transition zone. So it's probably 122, 130,000 hectares of um, biosphere reserve area, which is a fairly large area. It is. And it incorporates um, some Ramsar wetlands as well, doesn't it? And that's one of the, the key sort of uh, importance in terms of environmental values. It is, they are of key environmental values, and we do have uh, two Ramsar sites within the Biosphere Reserve, which is um, really terrific, but it also highlights the um, the importance of, of Western Port because of its natural environment, the vast support of migratory species 
as a Ramsar site, as well as the terrestrial species. I'm, I'm really interested, Cecilia, in terms of why Western Port in particular was proclaimed a biosphere by UNESCO, and I'm going to do what I know people in Western Port hate, but in, in this instance, I think it's a really good thing in, in terms of comparing it to Port Phillip. Why was Western Port proclaimed a biosphere by UNESCO um, as opposed to Port Phillip, because Port Phillip's got its own sort of Ramsar wetland. Um, uh, what, do you know much about the circumstances leading up to when this occurred? Because quite a statement, uh, isn't it? It's a actually, really important yes, statement. I do, because I've actually been around and had some involvement with the biosphere since about 2002, 2003. So, um, well, it was brought about because uh, a number of community groups and com interested communities thought the area was so special and they really needed to get some sort of recognition of its uh, environmental uniqueness. And with the support of the local governments, Mornington Peninsula Shire and, and other councils, uh, community groups and members of the community got together and put up uh, a nomination to UNESCO. Um, the, these things are nominated. They have state government support and they also have to have federal government support before they're put up to UNESCO for them to assess the values of the area. It's quite a long process, quite extensive, and the, the, without the community support um, in that process, um, these things don't get off the ground. And it's quite a statement, isn't it, in itself, the fact that UNESCO has given this a tick and said, yes, we recognise this is a really important area, and, and having that strong community behind it too, I think is one of the, the great things about Western Port. Yes, and you know we've got five council areas. We've got uh, Basco Shire, Cardinia, Casey, City of Frankston, and all the whole of the Mornington Peninsula Shire, all in the biosphere reserve. So it sort of it it, it in highlights the uniqueness because it spreads such a vast. A differing type of environment. The demographics of the populations, the the, the uh, makeup of the populations and the landscapes is really quite different. And um, as with that come different pressures as well into the future. Yeah, I was about to ask you about that. What what are sort of some of the current challenges facing Western Port? Obviously there's the, uh, it's been talked about for quite a long time now, the proposed expansion at Hastings. Um, what are some of the other challenges facing Western Port? Well, I think urban development is a, is a very large um, challenge for any area um, because of the moving of uh, loss of arable farming land. Uh, that's a challenge for some areas, food security into the future. Um, the waste and pollution generated by um, uh, the development also is an impact on the on the marine environment. So, uh, how, you know, raising people's awareness of those type of things is is really important. I mean, we're doing that, I think, through a project we're now undertaking called Water Stewardship uh, in Western Port, and we're doing that with Water Stewardship Australia, and that's to try and create um, or encourage landholders uh, along the Watson Creek catchment at this time to undertake uh, water stewardship projects programs on their land to get accredited uh, in line with the international standard so um, and that impacts so if we can do get something like that happening it'll be really great it'll have an impact on on the whole area and it's quite there are a, other things that are done too yeah it's quite a and particularly for you as executive officer is this a major part of your role Cecilia in terms of you know the engagement part of bringing people together 
that, that, that's really what we, as, a, as we say with our highlight, um, our tagline, Growing Connections for Sustainability. That's what we're trying to do. We're trying to bring people together, get them working in partnerships, facilitate partnerships in, in projects and, and um, how we interact with people. You know, like we did our report card, which we've recently released as a pilot report card, to, to sort of focus on the area as a, as a region, not just as the five individual parts, but as a region and look at it from that perspective. So to try and get that community involvement as a regional perspective on the on, as a biosphere. I noticed you've um, also got a research committee. What's the role of your research committee? Well, the research committee is there really to look at things that are happening um, in the uh, area of the biosphere. I mean, they, they, we've got a couple of programs that we have done. Predominantly, it's been a program on the protection of the southern brown bandicoot. But uh, our role, the role of the research committee, is to just sort of look at the various responsibilities that are out there, uh, what is being done in the way of research in the area, um, if we can facilitate um, bringing researchers and people and communities together we try to do that so they're looking at um, what research is being done in the area and how we can uh, collaborate with that. Um, I noticed that you had a public forum in May do you have any more coming up soon because I'm guessing we've probably got quite a few listeners who'd be interested in coming along and hearing more about what you do. Um, we we haven't got any public forums planned just at this moment, but later in the year for our AGM, we usually do hold some sort of a forum and information session. But um, on on our website, we always have things updated and on our Facebook page. And if anyone subscribes to our newsletter, which goes out uh, quarterly, um, that keeps people informed with what upcoming events. Life Search will be the next thing that we have, which in October is a project that we conduct during Bird Week to sort of encourage people to go out and see what what uh, birds they can find and also what other species they can identify in that period. And details of that are coming up on our website shortly. Fantastic. So here's a good opportunity. Do you want to uh, give a plug to your website so people can check it out for more information? Yes, www.biosphere.org.au and people are very able to uh, join online and also, if they feel inclined, make donations to help us get this work underway. Fantastic. And uh, I will give a plug also to your newsletter, The Biosphere Connector. I'm a subscriber to that and it's um, a really good way of keeping informed with what's going on in Western Port. Um, Cecilia, thanks so much for joining us and uh, love to keep in touch and particularly as we head into uh, closer to October when you've got your next public um, forum coming up or your public uh, uh, event and um, and yeah. keep in touch with what's going on. Thank you very much. Thanks. Most enjoyed talking to you. Oh, likewise. It's been wonderful to ke- well, connect <laughs> on that theme and, uh, and make sure we stay connected into the future. Thank you. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye for now. Well, that was Cecilia Witten, Executive Officer for the Western Port Biosphere. Hi, I'm David Suzuki, and you're listening to Radio Marinara on 3RRR 102.7 FM. Hey, I've got a couple of quick bits of um, news. One, not so great, and this is something that um, Sea Shepherd have been um, putting quite a lot of publicity out about. It's um, mass slaughter of pilot whales in the Faroe Islands. I don't know if you've come across that one. Mm, nope. It's pretty gruesome. Um, definitely not something that you want to 
kind of have on your screens when the kids are around and if you've if you're a bit sensitive to this stuff you might want to be careful about having a look yourself it's pretty horrific so uh, this is on the danish Faroe islands and oh look it's it's more of what we know about um it's part of a, an annual drive hunt very similar to what goes on in taiji and um just loads of pilot whales that have been slaughtered and it's just it's gut-wrenching and heartbreaking to watch but um good on sea shepherd for being out there they've actually had some of their people arrested in the process of trying to draw attention and stop this process um if you want to find out more about it i can only really direct you to the sea shepherd website and um and check it out and look you know we'll we'll do we do give them our support because we strongly believe in what they do um another one this is a more positive one just to give another plug this is the victorian coastal awards for excellence 2015 we've mentioned this one a couple of times over the last month or so but um wanting to give it a plug because the uh, applications close, the nominations close at midnight next Sunday, August uh, the 2nd. So there's a bunch of categories, six categories, where you can nominate people who've done great work in the uh, the coastal scene, natural environment, education, planning and management, design and building, community engagement and outstanding individual achievement. So this is the 16th year of uh, awards for the Victorian Coastal Awards for Excellence. And if you want some more information, we've already put a link to our website, uh, to their website, sorry, on our Facebook page, but we will do that again for today's program. And we have our special guest on the line. Good morning, Sean. Greetings, Rod. How are you going? I'm good. How's the surf down there? Um, well, it's. I think it's uh, currently hailing outside, and I just saw one of Bob Johnson's cows fly past. So, uh, it's a bit blustery. It's, uh, it's howling westerly, so it's a rostered day off, I think, for the surf. Ah, uh, well, we might try and get something this afternoon in a, in a sleepy corner somewhere. There might yeah. be something. Anyway, it's I'm been a good run, though. It's, uh, we've, we've had a really good winter down here. It's been uh, one of the best I can remember in a long time. That's good to hear. It has been very good and only halfway through, so lots to look forward to. So, Sean, thank you very much for um, ringing in. And um, I had a comment the last show I did... I did a wetsuit roundup, and I did a quick roundup of the Patagonia wetsuit range. And a, a, a viewer or listener rang up and said, "You should talk to Patagonia because they have an interesting philosophy." And so I thought I'd uh, contact you, and we can just quickly go through what Patagonia are and how they are different. When you get on their website, it's very clear they have a very enhanced environmental and social outlook. Yeah, it's a, a phenomenally interesting company. It's, it's essentially it's a giant mum and pop company. You know, it's uh, it's still owned and run by the the guy who founded it 40 years ago, a uh, a guy called Yvonne Chenard. Uh, it's it's still run out of the same place in Ventura, California, and still run pretty much exactly how he um, how he designed it to run 40 years ago. As you said, you know, it's run on a really strong environmental and social platform. And the fact it's you know it's transformed into a pretty big business over there uh, in the years hasn't really hasn't really altered that at all. Now, Yvonne was a climber, or is a climber? Is that right? Yeah, yeah. He started out in the mountains, but um, but Ventura, of course, is on the coast. Um, there, he was a he still is. You know, he's still a daily surfer whenever he is by the coast up there. Um, he grew up that area up there. Of course, you know, it's pretty close to, to Santa Barbara, so mm. he grew up uh, with Greeno as well. Okay. They surf before George migrated over here in the uh, the late 60s. You know, they, they surfed a lot together. Um, so it's still, even though it's essentially, you know, it, it kind of was born in the mountains in a lot of ways, it's it's still got a real kind of coastal feel to it, and especially so here. Now it's, um, you know, it's found a little foothold here in Australia. 
That's right. And one of the philosophies that the uh, company abides by is that 1% of sales is donated to grassroots environmental groups, including several in Australia. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I think um, the total over the 40 years, it's in, it's like, it's in the 70 millions of um, somewhere that they've, they've put back into grassroots organisations. Um, yeah, and it's only a small, like we're a little outpost here. You know, we've only been going five years here as, as an offshoot of the big the, the business in America. But yeah, you know, we're starting to flow some some funds out to you know to really kind of grassroots organisations to, to you know to, to fight the fight essentially. I've got a little list here of uh, some of the organisations that Patagonia support. One of them is the Devil Ark, of course, to help the poor Tasmanian devils. Uh, yeah. Tangaroa Blue Foundation. Now, that's one that, that really interests us because they're, as I understand it, their role is to remove marine debris. And yeah, a lo- Sorry. You're right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, there's... Um, yeah, it's a real varied kind. It's like a menagerie of causes. And, yeah. Um, you know, because the business here is fundamentally a little different to America in that it's, it's really coastal. So, um, and that's kind of reflected in... In our one percent partners, um, you know, there's take three, the take three campaign, which encourages people just to pick three pieces of rubbish up from the beach that isn't theirs every time they go. Um, and we've got a couple up on the Barrier Reef as well, okay. so which, which is which is slowly kind of starting to crystallise. In our view, is kind of like as a real a real battlefront for us. And it seems that the company's done a lot of work around fair trade and making sure that the companies that supply them uh, follow fair labour practices. Yeah, well, that whole, you know, in the, the, the fast fashion industry, that it's so smoky and that whole um, supply chain going back to, you know, places where all this stuff's manufactured, as a rule, you generally never know where this stuff comes from. Um, you never know the conditions that it was made in. And it's been a philosophy of, of the company ever since day one with Yvonne that that, that transparency is there. Um, you know, you can click on the website and follow stuff back to wherever it was made. And the, the company happily... You know, we'll, we'll tell you stuff's made in China, it's made in, in places where other stuff's made, but they follow it all the way back and, and you know, there's real transparency in where it comes from and they check off that wherever this stuff's made, it, it's done the right way, hmm. essentially. Now, just getting back to the wetsuits, one of the things that really struck me about your wetsuits is that they're, you're, someone is at last looking at an alternative... Uh, I guess raw materials that go into it that that are recyclable. Can you just tell us a little bit about them? Yeah, and it's come from a strange place too. It's actually uh, the the Ulex range we make is sixty percent made with out of a desert grass that comes from um, southwest North America. It's called a uh, hyule, which is this stumpy looking, weedy looking grass. But um, but somehow they've managed to make a like a, a natural rubber out of it, a bio rubber. So, of course, which is traditionally made in neoprene, which is an oil-based um, substance, which, you know, has a lot of all sorts of problems, you know. Um, yeah, that's right. You know, environmentally, you know, rendering that down to, to make a wetsuit out of it. So, yeah, we've got a wetsuit that's 60% made of, uh, made of grass, made of renewables. And I think, you know, the, the long game here is we'd, we'd love to, to make a 100% um, ULEX wetsuit at some stage. That's the goal. And we've got guys working on it right now. Hey Sean, it's Bron. I was just hey, wondering. Hey, how you doing? I was just wondering. Good. I was wondering. Um, has there been any discussion in the industry? We're talking about recyclable wetsuits. Has there been any discussion about making recycled wetsuits? So um, wetsuits made out of recycled rubber or or neoprene. Is that kind of even been canvassed? Uh, 
I think we're only just starting to, you know, um, to get a feel with the other companies. They're actually looking at... I don't know about recycled materials. Um, I think, you know, renewables is probably the, the first little venture that anyone's kind of, you know, breaking free of the the, the whole neoprene gear because it's been neoprene since day one. Um, so it's... You know, I don't think anything, from my knowledge, is made out of recycled neoprene. Um... But I may be wrong there. I'm not sure. Yeah, but, but it's but it's certainly um, the whole renewable thing and the fact that technology is there right now has, has kind of opened a few people's eyes. And and uh, and well, Patagonia actually one of the real interesting aspects of it is the IP on that um, on the Ulex technology. They actually make that available. Like they don't hold a, a copyright on it. They actually give it away because they want other companies to use it. Because, you know, their philosophy in it is there's no sense making these renewable wetsuits on your own because you, you can't really affect the larger footprint. You know, you need the other companies to, to kind of buy into this. So um, they've, they've thrown it out there, essentially, which is pretty rare in a, you know, in a highly mercantile commercial world. It is rare, and it's really refreshing, too. <laughs> Sean, it's Dr. Beach here. Hi. Um, I'm just wondering... Hi, how are you going? Pretty good. Um, with renewable, do you mean that the, the wetsuits, they break down? They're biodegradable? Uh, well, if they're 100%, I probably can't say that with any degree of certainty, but they're made with renewable um, materials. So if, if we do get to the point where it's 100% made with high-yule grass, yeah. um, then you've, you've got nothing that's, you know, you haven't drilled to make that wetsuit. You know, it, it's completely, you can replace it with, uh, with renewable material. That's what I love about this, the fact that it's, it means that it's, um, it's not petroleum-based. Yeah, exactly, yeah. Yep. That's great. Yeah, and, and really, I think the industry needs to, to go down that road because boards are made from petrochemicals, most of them, mm. and it's great the yeah, wetsuits. Yeah, it's, and it's one of the great ironies of you know of the, the surf industry in general in that a lot of the stuff that gets made is you know it's kind of horrible. You know, you're 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 undertaking this pursuit. You're out in the water in the natural environment, but you're doing it on stuff that yeah. That um, you know, if you have a close look at it, it's actually pretty ugly. Yeah. Well, just quickly, Sean, before we go, just a couple of comments. I know I was um, chatting with you about what happened with Mick Fanning. Um, oh yeah. And you were saying that you'd you'd been chatting with the boys in South Africa and about w- what happened on on the ground. Have you got any insight? Oh yeah. Well, you know, they were clearly rattled. Um, you know, it was rattling for everyone who had has kind of any connection with uh, with that world and who knows any of those guys. Um, I've been to, to Jeffrey's a, a bunch of times. It, you know, the water's just alive over there. You know, there's dolphins in plague proportions, whales that think they're dolphins. It's just the place is swimming with marine life. Um, and, and along with that comes some big, big dark shadows that you don't want to know about generally. So these guys have known that, you know, the sharks are there. Mm. Most of them have had experiences where they've seen them and, and had to kind of walk on water to get out of there. But this, you know, this was something else. Um, and to watch it on live TV, it was like it was like surfing Zapruder film, you know. Yes. Watching a live, you know, you didn't know it was live TV, and he was a guy getting nudged by a shark, and you didn't know the outcome. It was it was pretty horrific to watch. Yeah. And, uh, very and very guys, lucky. Yeah, it was really rattling to see it. Uh, you know, to see it um, firsthand. Just one thing I did hear was that within ten or fifteen minutes of that attack, the locals had suited up and paddled out because there was no one in the water and the surf was good, and and <laughs> and being led by none other than than the finless wonder himself, who yeah, uh, who lives yeah. over there. Who's yeah, that? Well, Derek Hind. Oh right. 
Oh, wow. Um, who's a friend of a friend of mine's. But uh, did you hear similar stories? Oh, yeah, yeah. Derek was first in the water. And I don't know whether it was the fact the surf was still good um, and there was no one out or the fact that, you know, there was a statement being made there, that's Derek, you know, that's mm. kind of his style. Um, but he paddled out on an 11-6 finless board and had Jeffrey <laughs> Bay to himself, which, which, you, which you don't get every day of the week. But uh, I, don't know how, I don't know how nervous he was or whether the experience aged him at all. But uh, <laughs> I don't think Derek would, would care. But, no, uh, I don't think he would. No, he, he's a bit he of a maverick. on another plane altogether. Yeah. <laughs> okay, thanks very much, Sean. It's been terrific to talk to you. And I know you've got a, a new book coming out, and we'll get you back on the show to have a chat about that in a future date. No worries. Great talking, guys. What's the uh, what's the projected date for that one, Sean? Uh, it's out pretty soon, actually. I'm doing a little local launch here at the end of this week um, and rolling it out at the Byron Writers Festival the week after. So, yeah, I'm out and around, so it'd be good to chat at some okay. stage with you guys for sure. And just for our listeners, a new book on Michael Peterson. So oh, awesome. We'll be interested to talk to you about that. So thanks again, Sean. I hope the, the wind drops and you get in the water and continue this wonderful winter we've been having. Yeah, no, it's been a beauty. Thanks, guys. Okay, thanks, Sean. See Talk ya. to you soon. There you go, Sean Doherty. And uh, amazing stuff. Mm. Derek Hine going straight back out. There's a backstory you won't hear anywhere else, Dr. Surf. No. I've got, I've just, I, I know a little bit about Derek, and he's a, he's a one-off. I mean, I've, of, I've often said, in my opinion, he's the greatest surfer in the world because of what he's done on finless boards. It's just mind-blowing. Well, he's profiled in Music of Surfica. He's, mm. he's quite... You know, front and centre of that, mm. and um, done some more work with Mick Sowery up on the reef as well. I think was he, he in the reef? Yeah, he has, and and he's he does bits bits and bobs. But my favourite story about Derek, and and this really tugs at my heart, is that when you get a lift with Derek, you have to sit in the back seat because his dog sits in the front. Oh, <laughs> good <laughs> big, man. Big respect for that one. <laughs> so is he an Australian that's, that's yes. moved to South Africa? Well, he had a house in South Africa, and he he still goes there a lot. He, um, but he's he's very a bit nomadic. Okay, interesting. Very very smart man. Yeah. And uh, when he was a pro, he actually had a very bad accident where his board hit his eye and he lost his lost an eye. Oh right. So he surfed just on one eye, which is it's very difficult to do that. I know when I lose a contact lens, I can barely see. So, but he's he's a true maverick. Very smart, and he does what he wants to do. Great. <laughs> That's awesome. Ah. <laughs> We're back. We are. And we just worked out that the, the new ad for the Triple R Radiothon was done by the Beach Boys. <laughs> <laughs> that was such a nice fade. It was good, good of them to do it, wasn't it? Yeah. All those years just ago. goes to show how much um, how much support we have right around the world. We do. And you are listening to Radio Marinara, and you've got Bron Burton, Dr. Surf, and myself, Dr. Beach, in the studio. And for five minutes, I'm going to do what we sometimes call a life's a beach, and I'm going to talk a little bit about science and a paper which I find really interesting is one which was published very recently in Science by someone who rejoices in the name of Line Bay, which I think is a great name for a marine scientist. B-A-Y? B-A-Y, Line Bay. Um, mm. A lady who works at Townsville, at Ames, and she did some work with people from Austin looking at corals and whether corals can inherit, inherent, uh, what am I saying, inherit tolerance to heat. So as we have a warming environment, a warming world, we know that corals can be very much affected by that. And there is data out there to show that corals will acclimatise over time, so physiologically adapt to an increase in temperature. But what we don't know until now is whether corals can inherit, inherit 
a propensity to resist heat. So what they did is they took two groups of corals. They took a cropper, which is a staghorn coral, uh, one group from Princess Charlotte Bay, which is just at the base of the Cape York Peninsula, and they looked at another group, which is five degrees south of that, so five degrees of latitude south from that of Princess Charlotte Bay, which is down near Ingham, I think, or it might be Innisfail, one of those towns beginning with I. And they crossed those. And they were able to show that the ones which lived in further north were able to pass on genes for heat tolerance to the ones that lived further south. Ah. So the ones that lived further south were... It took them a long time to adapt to experimental increase in temperature, whereas the ones further north could resist increased temperature in the lab a lot better. And so this is able to be passed down from generation to generation. And furthermore, if you, as I mentioned before, if you cross the ones from the north with the ones from the south, then the ones, the babies of those, will inherit an ability the resistance to gene. resist to yeah, this resistance to heat, wow. which is a really important thing because... If we have dying or corals dying out en masse, we don't necessarily have to wait for the number of years, decades for those to adapt physiologically slowly. Rather, we can transfer genes, if you like, or genetic you know, material. It's like getting somebody... Well, yeah, you can imagine doing it with any animal, but we can do this now. We can pass... You know, potentially, we can save groups of corals in the south which might be getting knocked off because of heat by mating them with ones which are more heat resistant. So what difference in temperature are we talking about that they're resistant to? Uh, it's a f couple of degrees and in the lab they ramped up the temperature to about five degrees so they were able to do that so you know we project that temperatures will go up two or three degrees and in fact corals during the day with the um, tides are subjected to a, a pretty dramatic range of temperature differences. Hmm. Yeah. This is pretty cool stuff. And that, so is there uh, a, does this give you the possibility of taking coral from the north and reseeding exactly from the south? Yeah, you got it at the heart of it, Dr. Surf. Very good. <laughs> and another paper I really want to quick talk quickly about is in a group of dinoflagellates. As you know, I love phytoplankton and dinoflagellates are one of the many groups of phytoplankton out there. And... Lots of different phytoplankton, lots of unicells actually have the ability to see, to detect light. They have what we call primitive eyes. And there was one group which has fascinated biologists for years since they've seen a couple of these cells swimming around in the plankton, but these have been very hard to culture, this particular type of dinoflagellate. A group in Canada has now taken individual cells of this dinoflagellate, which are called Wanawid dinoflagellates, and they've been able to microdissect out this eye structure that they have and show that it's actually very much like the eye that you might find in a multicellular organism huh. in, in an animal. Wow. So it's actually built on a camera type thing. So it's got a cornea, it's got a retina, and it's got a little thing a little bit like an iris in the middle of it. It's quite and sophisticated then. It, it's really, really sophisticated and it's actually built up from many different types of substructures which have been inherited from other branches of evolution. Um, yeah, eyes in plankton. Who would have thought? Well, yeah, there's a bit of it about, but we had no idea that there were such complex ones in these really rare organisms in these rare particular species of dinoflagellates. There's always something new to learn, isn't there, Dr Beach? There sure is. Hey, thank you for today. Thank you. Pleasure. Thank you, Dr Surf. Pleasure. Thank you, Kath. Thank
Thank you, uh, Kent. He's been doing an amazing job taking your calls. He'll have this show up as a podcast within the next couple of hours, being the complete legend that he is. And uh, thank you to our guest, Cecilia Whitten from the Western Port Biosphere and to Sean Doherty from Patagonia. On next week's program, Dr Beach, you're back in. We're talking seals and gannets. Yeah, we're bringing in some PhD students to talk about their work and they're very excited about it. And uh, Terry, our dive reporter, uh, Rex Hunter's in as well, talking about Bass Strait Rex. So much to talk about. Stay tuned for radiotherapy and uh, have a great Sunday. Bye for now. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.